0: The excitement over COP26 has gripped our political leaders and it's obviously gripped the media. But is it really going to be this great turning point that uh, our Prime Minister promises us? Or is it, as Greta says, blah, blah, blah? Well, if success at COP26 is measured by the way in which the PR goes, It will be a triumph for the Prime Minister, it will place the UK as global leaders uh, and we will be told that we have turned the corner. But, you know, is this really the case? Is this what's going to happen? Or is this going to be hot air? Is this the real deal? Or just another one of those COPs, which by December will be in the history books along with Paris, Durban, Copenhagen, Kyoto, etc. Well, to think about this, you have to start with getting the question right. So, what exactly are all these world leaders trying to do at Glasgow? All I'm sure well meaning and well intended. You might think that what they're trying to do is address the greenhouse effect, and in particular, the carbon concentration in the atmosphere. You might think that they would therefore sign up to targets which could measurably impact on that carbon concentration in the atmosphere and its increases. But that's not it. What happened at the Kyoto COP and the Kyoto Protocol embedded this was something really very different. It tried to answer the question of what needs to be done by countries to reduce carbon territorial production, the emissions within a particular geographical area, not The question, what needs to be done to reduce the carbon footprint and hence address the carbon concentration in the atmosphere? And again, you might think this is just, you know, uh, nitpicking, pedantry and academic exploration. But in reality, it's a really big deal, because if you look at the last 30 years of all this effort, all this moral, political capital deployed, it's been going very, very badly. So since 1990, we've increased the carbon concentration in the atmosphere by about two parts per million every single year. Nothing that's been done since 1990 has made a dent in that path of adding two parts per million per annum. And if you want to really think through what's at stake here bear in mind that the carbon concentration in the atmosphere went up two parts per million during the great financial crisis in 2007-2008 and staggeringly it went up last year despite all the great coronavirus lockdowns two parts per million every single year for 30 years 30 wasted years and behind that lies the big switch in where the emissions are coming from and what's backing them so if you look over those 30 years the big story is clearly China China has burst onto the world stage it's been doubling its size well for quite a lot of the period every seven years it's now gone from being a coal exporter to being 50% of the total world coal burn and more and counting. It's opening more coal power stations than the EU and the US together are closing. And it's a core part of our fossil fuel world and fossil fuels make up about 80% of global energy still. Now that great effort has been in China to industrialise, to take people out of poverty, to make a difference to the Chinese population. But it's been built like all the great transitions in the 20th century, Germany, Korea, Japan, and so on. It's been based upon export-orientated energy-intensive goods. A lot of that stuff in China, and quite a bit of that 30% almost of total global emissions, is stuff for us. And of course, we pride ourselves on being this fantastically successful country, the UK, that's driven down carbon territorial production. But, you know, we've been de like Europe, and we and the Europeans and the US are primary markets for those export-orientated goods from China. You know, fertilisers, aluminium, steel, cement, petrochemicals, and so on. So if you really want to do something about climate change, if you really want to turn the corner at Glasgow, at the COP, then you have to do something about carbon footprints and carbon consumption. And stop kidding yourself that just because you're driving down territorial production and therefore you can claim under the Kyoto framework, the Paris framework and Glasgow what a fantastic success you are, Instead of making those sort of claims, you have to face the reality that it's that consumption of carbon, it's imports as well as domestic production, and all of that stuff is for you and me. It's us as individuals, ultimately, for which the economy functions. It's our consumption, our pollution, and we as the polluters should pay the consequences. And we need to act now. At Glasgow, we'll hear a lot about targets in 2.35, a lot more about 2.50 and 2.60. But all of this is far too late. You know, the world can't stand China not peaking its carbon emissions by 2.30, by which time at current growth rates, it'll be twice its current economic size. And we can't wait 40 years for China and Saudi Arabia and others to get to carbon neutrality, whatever that means. These are convenient dates in the future, long beyond the time when our current political leaders will be out of office. Many of them be dead by 250 and almost all of them, if not all of them, by 260. It's all too late. What we need to do is get on with the job now, not promise to get on with the job in the future, though that's valuable in its own right. Choose the right targets and get on with confronting the polluters with the cost of their pollution. And that really needs two things, that which would really be turning the corner. It requires a carbon price, implicitly or explicitly, to be paid on all the carbon we consume. And that means not just domestically, but internationally. It should apply domestically to agriculture, transport, heating, and energy on the same basis, Doesn't matter which and where carbon uh, emissions are reduced. And it should apply to imports on the same basis as domestic production. It's no good closing down the UK uh, agricultural beef sector and importing the stuff from cleared rainforests in Brazil. That won't do. We have to address these issues. So we need to get serious, recognise it's consumption that's the problem and that we are as consumers the ultimate polluters we have to recognize that our consumption is unsustainable and therefore we have to get on the sustainable consumption and growth path and that means paying the price of carbon and of course if we do this we would genuinely no longer be causing climate change under our current net zero target we will still be causing climate change as long as we're importing stuff that's got embedded carbon pollution so We have to get onto that carbon polluter pays territory. Painful, politicians don't want you to know that, but it's part and parcel of what needs to be done. And then we can form a coalition of the willing of those countries who genuinely unilaterally no longer want to cause climate change, which is our moral duty, by the way, and we should do it. That's crucial, bottom up coalition of the willing. But in addition, we've got to help the developed countries to transform in a low carbon way and they rightly say you know we put most of the carbon up in the atmosphere and we've industrialised why should we deprive them of the benefits of those higher standard of living and that industrialization too and you know a hundred billion dollars a year might sound a lot but it isn't you know we probably spent 300 billion on coronavirus in this country and of course it all assumes that people are going to cough up and they haven't done to date for previous promises. And if you look at the behaviour of politicians and electorates, you know, this is a country which has cut its overseas aid from 0.7 to 0.5% of GDP because it's better spent at home. That's a long way from what needs to be done to address a global problem of global emissions and emissions anywhere are just as dangerous and just as important as emissions anywhere else. So if we look at what will happen and ask ourselves, will it be the big deal? Will it turn the corner? Personally, I doubt it. I wish I was wrong. I really do want this to turn the corner, but I'm not convinced it's going to. And if we think through what the consequences of cakeism, boosterism, boasterism of telling people that they're going to succeed in decarbonisation and not face any costs, uh, we're going to postpone action into the indefinite future. You can see that's what's going to happen. And of course, people aren't stupid. Next time you get your electricity and gas bill in April, with the next big increase following the one you've had so far, ask yourself, is this really caused by the fact that we haven't got out of fossil fuel fast enough and we're buying too much gas? Or is it because we just didn't think through what was involved in dealing with intermittent wind and what backup we would require as part of our net zero transition? Tell the truth. Tell people it's probably going to be expensive but it's right and proper we should do so. Perhaps the Prime Minister should take a leaf out of uh, his hero's book, Churchill, when confronted with the need to radically transform the UK economy in the 1930s in the run-up to the Second World War. He didn't say, it's great a war's coming because it's a fantastic investment opportunity to build Spitfires, develop new technologies and so on. He told them the truth, which is that it's going to cost... But in the Churchill case, it's worth doing, it's worth defeating fascism, etc. And the similar line today would be to tell people the truth about the costs of decarbonisation, but tell them it's worth doing because three degrees is not a world we want to live in. And we have a moral obligation to do our bit unilaterally, at least, towards not causing any more climate change. The risk in cakeism, boosterism, boosterism, is that it genuinely is blah, 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 and Greeter's right. But it doesn't have to be that way, and uh, it would require a substantive change of direction, but it's one we should take. Thank you very much.